First Samuel chapter 19. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time. Father, we come before you as we open up your word. We ask that you would open up our hearts. And Lord, we approach your word this morning, not in a cavalier way, but Lord, with reverence. As Peter proclaimed, and you are the words of life. And Lord, we believe that with all of our hearts. We believe that this book has words of life for us this very day. So, Lord, I pray that you would overlook mine inadequacies and, Lord, that you would teach your people today, that you would open your word to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. When my wife and I were first married, we had such horrible experiences on vacation that I really began to wonder, although I don't really believe in this, but I began to wonder if if there was such a thing if we weren't cursed, I've told you recently about the time, oh, two months after we were married, we were camping at San Onofre and I lost my wedding ring. Another time we went camping at Halama Beach, which is down towards uh, Lompoc, beautiful little cove of a beach, about a mile stretch there and a beautiful place. And 30 minutes after we arrived, the place was hit by a windstorm that lasted two days and the wind was blowing 40 miles an hour. All we could do, we couldn't cook, we couldn't do anything but just get into our little uh, pup tent and go to sleep. So we went to sleep about four o'clock that day, hoping that it would blow off and we woke up in the morning, it was still blowing. And so we left and we went home. We had another time when Aaron was just a little baby. He was probably one years old and we went to Palm Springs and it was in August. I know that wasn't smart, but it was free, but, but it was, uh, (laughs) it was miserable because it was so hot. I mean, it was like 120 degrees. It was like the closest thing to hell I'll ever get. And, uh, you know, it was just, it was just Horrid. And so Denise was miserable and she said, you know, we've got to do something. So I called my friend who worked at a hotel in Huntington Beach and it was like the Hilton or something. I said, we're out here in Palm Springs. It is just, you know, miserably hot. Can you help us? And he said, sure, come on down. He comped us a room. It was a great room, 12th floor, great view. Two hours after we got there, unpacked, a major earthquake hit. And this building was just, you know, going like this. And then there was the time (laughs) when we went down to Mexico. First time that we were ever going to leave little Aaron. He was our only child at that time. And we were staying some people in the church. Their parents had a uh, beach house down there and down past Ensenada. And so we took my Aaron to Orange County to stay with my my parents. By the time we got there, it was about a three-hour trip, and you know, we get to the place, we unpack our stuff, and Denise says, let's call and see how Aaron's doing. Before cell phones, and you know, they didn't have a phone in this place, and so we were stuck again. Needless to say, we went to sleep. We got up in the morning, and we left, and we went back. And, and, and you know, there was a, a time, I had to admit, those first few years, I thought that we were just doomed to never have a nice, uneventful vacation. And I'm sure you have your stories, too of your disaster trips. Now, those things can be a drag, but we can deal with them because they come and they go. They're here and they're gone, and it's just a bad memory. What is harder is when our lives start to resemble those trips, where it seems that no matter where we turn, all we see are problems. All we see are storm clouds. 
So how do we get through those type of situations? How do we get through when our life begins to resemble a proverbial earthquake or windstorm or heat wave? Well, that's right where we find David here in 1 Samuel chapter 19. The storm clouds have come blowing into his life. The heat is on. The attack is underway. But what we see in this chapter is how the Lord brings four different entities into David's life to help him cope. Four different entities to help him keep perspective in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the heat wave. And I suggest to you that the Lord wants these same four entities to be in our lives to help us cope and to help us keep perspective when the storm clouds come rolling into our lives. Let's read here the first five verses. We'll make some comments and then move on. It says, Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, And to all his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak with my father about you. And then what I observe, I will tell you. Thus, Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against David because he has not sinned against you and because his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoice. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without cause? Now we noted in our study last time in chapter 18 that David's reputation was growing. And we noted that four times in chapter 18, it says that David behaved wisely in all his ways. And as David's favor was growing in the eyes of the people, he was growing, that favor was turning to disdain in the eyes of Saul. And we're told that Saul was eyeing David with a jealousy, with a hatred, with an anger. And one day that jealousy erupted and that anger erupted and Saul picked up a spear and he tried to pin David to the wall. He tried to kill him. Now he did this not once, but he did it twice. And when that didn't work, then he took David and he sent him to the front lines. He sent him to the front of the battle to lead a thousand men into war, hoping that David would get killed. But again, God's hand was upon David and he was victorious in that season. And then Saul resorted to another means. He took his daughter Merib, promised her to David in marriage. But in order to try to arouse David to commit treason and, 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 and to react in revenge, he gave Merib to someone else right before David was supposed to marry her. And then there was Michael, Saul's daughter, who came on the scene and said, you know, I love David, I'll be his wife. And Saul said, "Okay, that's great. And he told David, you can have Michael, but here's the deal. I want you to go out and kill a hundred Philistines and bring back their foreskins. And David, you know, heard this and he went out and he brings back not a hundred, but he brings back 200. But the more that David succeeded, the more afraid and paranoid Saul became. So that we read in verse 29 of chapter 18 that Saul viewed David as his enemy continually. That here's this guy that God's hand is obviously upon. Here's this man, David, that that he's growing in the eyes of the people in favor. And they're seeing, you know, just what a wonderful leader and man that he is. But the whole time Saul is viewing him as his enemy. 
He is viewing David as a threat. And now Saul is persisting in his efforts to eliminate David, so much so that he takes a hit out on his life. He gathers Jonathan, his servants together, and he says, look, I want this guy dead. Now it's not just a secret thing in a room where he's throwing spears, but now Saul is going public with his desire to see David killed. And this is where we see the first entity that comes into David's life. And it's one that every man needs when the storm clouds come rolling in. And that's a strong and a loyal friend. And that's what Jonathan was to David. Now, we've already noted in chapter 18 how Jonathan, when he first met David, his friendship that he made with David, his heart was knit to him. They, they both were men of faith. They both were men of God. And Jonathan comes and he takes David and he takes, you know, Jonathan takes off his robe, which spoke of his position. He takes off his sword that spoke of his, his power. He takes off his armor, which spoke of his prestige. And he gives all of this to David. And basically what he was saying to his friend was, look, when you and I are together, it's not the king's son and the servant, but we are on equal planes. And Jonathan was a faithful friend. But here we see his friendship progressing in that Jonathan stands in the gap for David. And I want want you to take note of four ways that Jonathan stands in the gap. And this is what a, a friend does. This is what a loyal friend does. He stands in the gap when you are in trouble. First of all, he stands in the gap by warning David of his father's intentions. Jonathan was not a fair weather friend. He was not a friend who was going to come and go. He was not a friend who was going to be there when things were going well, but to bail, you know, when things were getting tough. He doesn't do that. Jonathan was a faithful friend and he stands in the gap. He warns his uh, David of his father's intentions. Now, Jonathan could have said, you know, look, I don't want any part of this. I'm not going to help my father do something that's wrong, but I'm not going to try to stop it either. I'll just be neutral. I'll let God work this out. But Jonathan doesn't take that attitude. He was a faithful friend who warns David of his father's intentions. And in doing so, he was risking his own life. He was taking his own life into his own hand or taking his life in his hands there. And what did Jesus say, though, in John 15, verse 13? That greater love has no man than this than to lay down his life for his friends. And this is what we see Jonathan doing here by warning David, by going against his father. So first of all, he stands in the gap by warning David of his father's intentions. Secondly, he stands in the gap in verse 4, by speaking well of David to Saul, his father. Now, here's what's interesting. Jonathan did more than just secretly help David with information, but he spoke well of David to his father, Saul. He went on record to say, look, I know you have a beef with David, but dad, I think you're wrong. I know that you have this opinion of him, but I don't share that opinion of him. This is how I see David. Now, it was wonderful for Jonathan to support David secretly, when it was just he and David. But it was another thing for Jonathan to support David before others. It was another thing for Jonathan to support David before those, those very servants of Saul who were going to come against him. And this is how you measure, really, the support of a friend. It's not what they say to your face, but it's what they say about you when you're not there. That's how you measure the true support, the true loyalty of a friend. Is what are they saying behind your back? What are they saying about you behind your back? And how are they defending you when there are others that come and want to say things about you behind your back? A friend of mine 
came to me once and and we both have a mutual friend and there were some people that were kind of attacking him and he happened to be in their presence and it took him so off guard that he was surprised you know at the things that they were saying and some of the things that maybe they were suggesting were true but they were taken out of context and he came he said what should I have done and I had just been in a similar thing and I told him I said you know I, I what, what I felt, you know, the need was to stand up and say, look, you know, what you're doing isn't right. And what you're saying, although this might be true, look at this. That's what Jonathan did. He was one who stood. He was loyal and he spoke well of his father. You know, by speaking well, by defending, by coming in, and when others are going to say something wrong, something bad, something negative about somebody that you are connected with, and you defend that person, that's one way to take yourself out of that loop of gossip, out of that loop of naysaying. Because if you defend, if you stand up, if you speak well, when they're pointing out something that is wrong, if you're pointing out something, you know, that is right and true, the next time they have that urge to do that, when you are around, they're going to think twice. And that's what Jonathan does here. So the second way we see is he spoke well of David to Saul. The third way that he stood in the gap is he challenged his dad not to sin. In verse four, he said, let not the king sin against his servant. Jonathan was bold enough to tell his dad that his jealousy and his anger against David was a sin. He was bold enough to say, look, what you are doing, dad, is a sin to call a spade a spade. But note this, David hasn't sinned against you. But you see, this is where Saul was warped. Saul was warped in his thinking. He was trying to rationalize. He was trying to think, you know, that, that David had sinned against him in some manner so that he could feel righteous about his cause. But Jonathan comes and he gives this needed word of correction concerning his father's actions. And then the fourth way that Jonathan stands in the gap is found in verse 5, that he reminded Saul of God's hand upon David and how David took his life in his hands when he killed the Philistine. Now, why did David remind Saul of these events? Was it that Saul had forgotten? No, Saul hadn't forgotten. But Saul had become so demented in his thinking that he began to spin these events with a meaning that justified his jealous anger. That went something like this. This is how Saul's thinking was. When David went out to fight that giant, it wasn't, you know, he really didn't have the best interests of the kingdom at heart when he did that. It wasn't a righteous cause, but he wanted to get popularity. He wanted to get fame because he's after my throne. That's how Saul is thinking. That's how paranoid, paranoid that Saul has become. And what Jonathan is doing is he tries to bring Saul back to reality. He's trying to bring him back to reality by reminding him, look, you saw it. You know what that was about. You rejoiced in it. You knew that God's hand was upon it. You rejoiced just like everyone else. So first of all, we see Jonathan standing in the gap for David. What was the result of Jonathan's intervention? Notice verse 6. It says, So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan, and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. And then Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him all these things. And so Jonathan brought David to Saul, as, and he was in his presence as in time past. What was the result of Jonathan coming and standing in the gap? Saul heeded Jonathan's voice. Now, here's the thing, though. Saul has a change of mind here, but not a change of heart. Saul is remorseful, but he is not repentive. 
And this is something that we will see over and over again in Saul's life is there is this reoccurring thing where he feels conviction, but there's no change where he feels remorse, where he's called on the carpet. He comes to his senses for a few minutes or a few days where there's remorse, but there's no repentance. And you know what? That is something that we need to watch out for. There's no follow through in Saul's life. What has God convicted you of recently? What has he spoken to your heart about recently? What has there been maybe at a men's retreat that we had recently or maybe in your own devotions or maybe as you sat here in the pew? What has God spoke to you of recently where he convicted you and maybe there was remorse, maybe there was conviction, but has there been change? Has there been follow through? Guys, that's what Christianity is all about. It's not about feeling remorse. It's not about feeling, you know, conviction, but it's about repentance. It's about follow through. It's about taking what God is speaking to our hearts and saying, "Okay, I want this to become a reality in my life. And so often that isn't the case. It wasn't the case with Saul. Many, many times there's remorse, there's conviction, but there's no change. There's no repentance in his life. Now, a little side note here. We see Jonathan standing in the gap for David because David was a great guy. And Jonathan delighted in him. He gave up everything in order to help his friend. Well, note this. Jesus has stood in the gap for us when we weren't great guys, when we weren't great gals, when we were full of sin and full of rebellion and enemies of God. And he stands in the gap for us today as our advocate to defend us against the accuser of the brethren, Satan, not because of what we have done, but because of what he has done for us and because he has linked himself to us and because he has placed us in him. And so he stands in the gap for us today. Jesus is that friend that sticks closer than a brother. He is that friend that is even on a greater plane than we see that of Jonathan here in our story. Let's continue on. In verse 8 we read, And there was war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and then they fled from him. Now the distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And then Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence, and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped that night. Here we see the third time that Saul is seeking to kill David by pinning him to the wall. David goes out, he wins a great battle, he comes back and he takes his position there as being this one to play his harp when when Saul is encountering this distressing spirit. What was this distressing spirit? We've talked about it before. Every spirit is in submission to the Lord. And when, when God appointed David, when David was anointed as king, the spirit of the Lord came upon him. At that, at that same time, the spirit of the Lord left Saul. And so Saul is left uncovered here and every spirit is in submission to the Lord. And so when it says that an evil spirit from the Lord, it simply means that the Lord allowed an evil spirit to afflict Saul because Saul had become rebellious in his relationship with the Lord. And once again, we see this distressing spirit comes upon him and he's throwing spears. David flees. Saul's going to go after him. And here we see the second entity in David's life at this point. 
that is put there to help him, to rescue him, to protect him from the enemy who is after him. And this is one that every married man in this room needs to have in his life when he is under the, in the storm. When he is under attack, that he, if he is married, what does he need? A supportive wife. And that's what we see next. Verse 11. Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window. And he went and fled and escaped. Now here we see that Michael was Saul's daughter. And this was a conflict of loyalties in Michael's life. She could act in her father's interest, or she could respond and act in her husband's interest. She makes the right choice here by supporting her husband, David. Michael is acting according to a principle found in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. Now, although that Genesis passage speaks specifically to husbands, it applies to both partners in the marriage. And the idea is this, is that the former family loyalties and obligations take a backseat to the loyalty and obligations of the new family that comes together in that marriage relationship. And so Michael here chooses her husband over her father. She does the right thing. And Michael helped by warning David. And David did well to receive this warning from his wife. She warns him and he receives the warning. Now, sometimes us guys, we can be so prideful and so hard-headed and so hard-hearted at times that we never hear how God might want to warn us through our wives. Through that person that he has put there next to us in our lives. But note this, if David had ignored this warning because of the source that it was coming from, he would have been dead in the morning. But he doesn't do that. He heeds the voice of his wife. Guys, we need to realize, God has placed your wife in your life for a specific reason. She is there to be your partner. She is there to be your helpmate. She is there to be an encouragement to you, and you need to listen to her. You need to hear her. You need to heed her voice because she will share from a perspective at times that you are not seeing. She will share at times things that you have never even thought about just because she's a woman. And she sees things the way a woman does. I have a great group of guys that I get together with or in leadership here at our church and we meet almost every week and and I love to get together with them because they expand my vision. I have a certain perspective and I'll throw something out to them, a problem or a decision. And I'll say, what do you guys think? And they begin to share. And all of a sudden, my vision just grows. It expands. And I love that. I, might, I walk out of there with, you know, four or five, you know, different perspectives. And it's just wonderful. Well, the other day I was talking to Denise about something that was going on. And, and she had an opinion. And it was different. And I, and I said to her, I said, well, you know, all the guys thought it was okay. And she responded by saying, they're all men. <laughs> and you know what? She was right. We were all men and we were seeing it purely from a man's point of view. I've been told in our new facility by other pastors that the most important room in that new facility is going to be the women's bathroom. And uh, I think that they're... <laughs> 
Now, you can know when we design this, we're not going to get a bunch of guys together and, you know, okay, where should we put this and that? We're going to talk to the, the women, you know. We're going to talk to them. And, and, and that's something that we need to understand, that there's a, a wisdom in, in that partner that God has given to us, that he has brought there into our life. And David shows wisdom in heeding the voice, the warning of his wife. But at the same time, ladies, listen. Michael spoke to David wisely. She spoke to David wisely. She might have said, David, here's the problem. Let me tell you what to do. She might have came and said, David, I'm here to save your life. Let me tell you what to do. That's not what she does. She comes and she says, this is what I see. Now it's up to you. This is what I see. Now you deal with this. Every couple of years, I get the chance to go to a really special pastor's retreat up at John Corson's church. And it's a thing that he does for a real small group of guys. It's by invitation only. And I'm fortunate to be a part of the group of guys that he invites to come and be a part of this. And it's just a special time. It's a wonderful time. And we were there, Denise and I, both a couple of years ago. And, and John gives this teaching. And it was a real pointed, it was a real, you know, in-your-face kind of teaching. And he was challenging us pastors. And he said, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. We're going to take an hour break. I want you to go out and I want you to sit and, and with your wife. And ladies, I want you to talk to your husbands for an hour. I want you to talk to them. I want you to see, to share with them what you're seeing, what you're sensing, what you've noticed as it relates to what I just shared. And guys, I don't want you to say a word for a whole hour. <laughs> John's wife wasn't there. It wasn't fair, you know. <laughs> But I tell you what, that was the hardest thing. And I even blew it a couple of times. I, I started to say, but, but. And then he's like, you're not supposed to say a word here, you know. But it is true. We need those times where we're open to hear that perspective from our wives when they can tell you what no one else can tell you. And they, they see into the depths of your heart. And this goes, you know, the other way, too, with the husbands to their wives. But I think us guys, we have a harder time a lot of times listening to our wives. So Michael simply told David, this is what I see. And when David decided on a course of action, she was there to help him put it into practice. Michael helped David by letting him down through the window. So we see here, Michael is a supportive wife, warning and helping David. But notice this, her help is flawed. And it results from her lack of trust in the Lord. That's what we see in verses 13 through 17. Notice it says, And Michael took an image and laid it in the bed and put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. And so when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. And then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, saying, Bring him to me in the bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair for his head. And then Saul said to Michael, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michael answered Saul. He said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? Now, here we see a problem in Michael's relationship with the Lord. This this phrase that it says Michael took an image, the word for image is a teraphim. 
And it wasn't really a, an idol that they worshiped, but it was something that they viewed as a good luck charm. And they kind of used it in their worship of Jehovah. And it was a good luck charm that oftentimes they used in relationship to for fertility, that they thought, you know, if they had this around and as they were praying that God was going to make them fertile. It's interesting, the two women that we see in Scripture using these things were barren. Uh, Michael was one and, and Rachel, uh, Jacob's wife, was another. When Laban comes after Jacob, accuses Jacob of stealing the household idols, it was the word there is the same word. It's the teraphim. It's this, this good luck charm that they had. The would-be priest Micah used the household idols, the teraphim, in corrupt worship of God in Judges 17, verse 5. And it's interesting, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 23, when Samuel said to Saul that rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as the... And Iniquity and idolatry, the word for idolatry there is the same word. It's the teraphim. And in the godly reforms of, of Josiah, when he was king, he prohibited the use of these household idols, these teraphim. They had no business in the life of, of God's people, these good luck charms that, that she was holding on to. And they were prohibited. But here we see a flaw. We see a, a weak point. We see something is wrong here in Michael's relationship with the Lord by the very fact that she has this in her house. And so instead of just telling the truth, that David escaped, or going even further like Jonathan and standing up to her father, Michael resorts in the flesh to deception. And she makes this idol and she puts it there in the bed. And she ends up by making matters worse because now she has to cover one lie with another. When Saul says, bring him to me that I might kill him. Now that shows how far Saul had gone. No longer is he, you know, has the hitman out there. But now in full open to everyone, all the servants there, he says, go get David so I can kill him myself. And, and Michael has to cover, she makes matters worse because now she's going to cover the first deception with a second deception by, by suggesting or saying that David had threatened to kill her. And all that does is add fuel to Saul's fire as he says, okay, great, now I really have a cause. You know, he's threatening my little baby. We've got to get this guy. We've got to kill him. So we see here Michael as the supportive wife, but not fully. Not fully trusting in the Lord. And ladies, you are called to submit to your husbands, to support your husbands, and then to trust the Lord. And you need to remember this, ladies, that you are someone else's daughter before you are your husband's wife. And I'm not talking about your earthly dad. You are a daughter of the king. You are God's daughter before you are your husband's wife. And he is committed to taking care of you. Michael should have realized that, but she doesn't. The third entity that we see in David's life is the church. Now, remember, we've talked about this before. A church is not a building, but it's a gathering of believers. It is a place where the presence of God clearly dwells. And that's where David flees to next for help. Verse 18. So David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. Now it was told Saul saying, take note, David is at Naoth in Ramah. 
And then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the group of prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. Here we see David fleeing to the church, fleeing to that place where Samuel and his school of the prophets is meeting, that place where God clearly, his presence is clearly dwelling. Now, it's interesting to me that there are two reactions that people have when they come under difficulty. One is to run to the church. Another is to run from it. Abraham is a good example of this. In Genesis chapter 15, after leaving Ur of the Chaldees, we read that that Abraham comes to Bethel. Bethel is the house of God. He comes to Bethel where he there encounters the Lord and he builds an altar and he worships and he has this just wonderful time with the Lord. But then famine hits. Difficulty comes. And what does Abraham do? Does he dig in? Does he hang on to the Lord? No, he runs to Egypt. Egypt is always representative of in Scripture of the world. And that's where where Abraham goes. He runs to the world, and it's there at the world that Abraham almost loses his life. He almost loses his wife. He almost loses everything that he has. And when he comes to his senses, he goes back to Bethel, back to the house of God, back to this place where he knew that God's presence was. And he builds an altar, and it was only then that things began to to fall into place in David's life. Maybe you're here this morning, and you have ran from the Lord. You have ran from the church. You've gone back out into the world and you, for some reason, you showed up here today. Know this. The world has nothing for you. The world has nothing to help you. The world has nothing to help you get through that difficulty, that time there in your life. But God does. And he's calling back for you today. You see, when Abraham went back to Bethel, he reaffirmed his trust in the Lord. And God wants you to reaffirm your trust in him today, to reaffirm your trust that you are going to follow him, that you're going to quit walking in the world, but you are going to begin to walk after the Lord. The the theologian G.K. Chesterfield said that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, but it has been found difficult and left untried. And that is so true. Let that, let that not be your testimony today. Oh, it was too difficult. And it was left untried. So David flees to Samuel and his school of the prophets at Naoth. Now circle that word Naoth right next to it, dwellings or lodgings. And it's always translated in the Chaldee language as the house of study. The house of study. Notice what they're doing. In verse 20, we're told that they were speaking words of prophecy. David goes to this place where they're speaking words of prophecy. Prophecy, what is it? It's simply declaring the word of God. That's what prophecy is. Prophecy can be predictive. It can also be instructive. And David goes to this place where the word of God is being proclaimed. And this gives us insight into what the church is to be about. That it is to be a place where the word of God is preached and proclaimed. This is to be a house of study. A place where we come together, where prophecy is laid out, where the word of God is declared. We read in Acts chapter 2 verse 42 that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Doctrine is teaching. The proclamation of the word of God. 
The church is not to be a place where people come seeking esoteric experiences. Or it's not to be a place where people come, you know, looking to experience the warm fuzzies or some emotional high. It is not to be a place where we go and hope that we feel good about ourselves. Because the Bible is like a knife and it cuts and it convicts. Some people, they go to church and that's their purpose. That's why they're there. They want to go to a place where they're going to tell them how wonderful you are. Well, the problem is really, truly is if we were really honest with ourselves, we know we're not that wonderful. And we study the word of God because it's a knife and it cuts us. And when surgery is needed, an incision is necessary. When surgery is needed, an incision is necessary. When I was first having my hip problems, I would go to this chiropractor. Went to him for about six months. And he would go in and he would adjust my neck and he would crack me on my side and he'd go, boy, you're doing great. And he would send me on my way. And I would feel better for about 30 minutes after I walked out of his office and then the pain would be right back where it was. I didn't need somebody to pat me on the back and say, hey, you're doing great. I needed surgery. And the same thing is true of us. A lot of people, they want to go to church and have somebody tell them, oh, you're doing great. Oh, you're so wonderful when we need a surgery and we need to allow the scalpel of God's word to do surgery upon our hearts. David was in a place where he needed in his life, not the warm fuzzies, but he needed to be reminded of God's truth. And so he runs there to the church. He runs to that place where the word is being proclaimed. And that's the role of the church. It's to be a place of sanctuary, declaring the words of God to the heart of the weary. And notice the result. Saul's guys come to Naoth. They hear the prophesying that's going on. They hear God's word being declared. The Holy Spirit comes upon their hearts and they do it too. They begin to prophesy. And this happens two more times. And then it happens to Saul himself. And guys, this is the goal of the church. That we would come together like this and the Holy Spirit would come upon us and get a hold of us. And that he would make us voices of God to the world. That we would leave this place going out declaring the word of God. That's what this is about. That's why we are here. And so we see this third entity in David's life, the church, the place where the presence of God was dwelling there with Samuel. The fourth entity in David's life we see also in this, it's the Holy Spirit himself. It's the divine intervention. Notice verse 21. It says, and when Saul was told, he sent other messengers and they prophesied likewise. And then Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. And then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Sichu. And so he asked and he said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Naoth in Ramah. And so he went there to Naoth in Ramah. And then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. And he also stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. And therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets? Here we see the divine intervention of the Holy Spirit himself. When Saul would not heed the voice of his own son, when he wouldn't pay attention to the efforts of his own daughter, when he wouldn't listen to the testimonies of his own servants, the Lord says, I'm going to deal with Saul myself. This is the second time that we read in the scripture of the Holy Spirit coming upon Saul and him prophesying. 
The first was in 1 Samuel chapter 10. It was a confirmation that God had chosen Saul to be king. It was a confirmation that others, when they looked at Saul and they heard him, they they said, surely this is the one that God has chosen to be the king. But this time it wasn't for confirmation, but it was for conviction. It was to show Saul how far he had fallen from the Lord. The stripping of Saul, him taking off of his clothes and laying there on the ground naked was to indicate how disgraceful Saul had become in his sin. It was to show that his sin was being exposed. The Bible says you can know this for sure. Your sin will find you out. And here Saul is disgraced. And Saul's sin cost him. What did it cost him? Three things and we'll be done. Note this. It cost him, first of all, his relationships. It cost him his relationship with his son. It cost him his relationship with his daughter. And it cost him his relationship with his loyal friend, David. And that's what sin will always do. It will cost you in your relationships. It will cost you your relationship with your family. I don't know how many families have been ruined by the sin of a spouse, of a husband or a wife playing around in some secret sin or some secret affair, your sin will find you out and it will cost you your relationships. Secondly, it cost him his reputation. From this point on, everybody's looking at Saul. They're asking here, it's not an affirming thing. They're they're saying, has Saul become one of the prophets? We hear him prophesying, but look at him. He's a mess, naked, laying on the ground night and day. What's going on with this guy? He was disgraced. They look at him as a crazy man. And even to this day, when the name King Saul is brought up, you know, surrounding of anyone who is studying the Bible or even in Israel, it's always with a negative connotation. He lost his reputation. And thirdly, it cost him his reward. He wasn't going to be rewarded. And even, or at least, in the very least, not like he would have if he would have handled this situation and responded well. Saul is a great example of what we don't want to be. A man who was convicted. A man who had remorse. But a man who didn't repent. A man who didn't change. A man who never really responded. I ask you this morning in closing here, what has God been speaking to your heart about? What has God been convicting you of recently? Have you followed through? Maybe it was a few weeks ago for you men as we were there at the men's retreat and Peter John on Saturday night laid out some things and many men stood up at these various things that God was saying, look, this needs to change in your life. Have you followed through? Was there remorse? Was there conviction? Or has there truly been repentance? Has there truly been change? If not, why? What are you holding on to? What is holding you back? Don't make the mistake of Saul. On the flip side of this, we are blessed in this chapter to see that our God loves us enough to put people and entities in our life to help us in the midst of the storm. And all of us, we need to have those friends who will support us In those seasons, if you don't know this, you have Jesus, who is a friend that is closer than a brother. He will always be there.
In our marriages as spouses, we need to be that type of support to our wives. And here in this place, this church needs to be a place where people can come and know that they're going to be cared for, where the word is going to be declared and shared. Not warm fuzzies, not opinions, but the word of God. And then last of all, we know this, that Jesus said that he would never leave us nor forsake us. And it's great to know that in the midst of the storms that we can find ourselves in, that God has surrounded us with those very things to help us get through. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, for your divine protection in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for the friends that you have given to us, the brothers and sisters who have been there, who are there, to stand in the gap. Lord, help us to be to one another those type of friends. And Lord, we pray for our marriages. Lord, that you would help us as husbands and wives to be those who go on record, who make a stand. And Lord, I pray for us as a church that you would help us, Lord, To be a place, to continue to be a place where your word is proclaimed, where your word is declared, where your word has the opportunity to act like a scalpel to do surgery on our hearts. Lord, help us not to run from the operating table. And Lord, we thank you for your Holy Spirit that you have placed in us, that you continue to have come upon us to strengthen us, to stand as lights in the midst of this dark world. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.